0: The Ensemble Podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. This content is created in partnership with our sponsor, Morningstar IM, ABN 54071808501, AFSL 228986, and Franklin Templeton Australia Limited, ABN 76004835849, AFSL 240827, and is limited to publicly available information. Before acting on any general advice, you should consider whether appropriate and obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. Ensemble does not hold an AFS license and does not provide any financial advice or services, or endorse any general advice. If a PDS or IM exists, you should obtain a copy and review it thoroughly before making a decision.
1: How are you now? And welcome to the Ensemble Investment Podcast. My name is James Whelan, VFS Group Investment Manager, and I'm here to represent you, the humble advisor, doing their best to walk the line between client interests and asset class selection. We're trying to find the things that are not only appropriate, but that are actually working to be in the right things, at the right weight, for the right clients. So get set because myself and Morningstar are going to do our absolute best to answer some of the questions that have come up over the Ensemble platform. All the information contained is general in nature. So here we go.
0: Morningstar Investment Management Australia is delighted to be sponsoring Ensemble's investment podcast series, designed to equip advisors to have more meaningful conversations with clients. Morningstar Investment Management is a global leader in asset allocation, investment research, and portfolio construction. Specializing in investing, behavioral coaching, and practice optimization, Morningstar strives to give advisors the tools to confidently navigate their clients' complex needs. Morningstar, empowering investor success. This episode is brought to you by Franklin Templeton. Franklin Templeton has been partnering with clients in Australia for over 30 years and proud of our long history of collaboration. We bring together leading investment managers to provide our clients deep expertise with specialization across asset classes, investment styles, and geographies.
1: How are you now? And welcome to the Ensemble Investment Podcast brought to you by Morningstar. My name is James Whelan, BFS Group Investment Manager, and I'm here to represent you, the humble advisor, doing their best to walk the line between client interests and asset class selection. We're trying to find the things that are not only appropriate, but also actually that work and maybe try and find the right time and the right weight for clients. So get set because myself and Morningstar are going to do our best to answer some of the questions that have come up on the Ensemble platform. And obviously, all information contained is general in nature. So here we go. Well, it's been a wild few years in which I saw people go from zeros to heroes in their understanding of how bond yields work, whilst at the same time keeping up with daily COVID numbers and mask-mandated policies. I believe, and this is say, so, I believe that the phrase has to be said before you do anything in this regard, that the phrase, bond prices rise when yields decline, was inducted as phrase of the year in 2020 by the uh, by the dictionary. Then 2022 happened, and oh my, didn't it make a lot of people look a little bit foolish, a little bit hilarious as well. And now we are balanced right at the precipice of some of the safest. I tell you that some of the safest fixed interest assets in the world, returning a near guaranteed rate, backed by some of them, backed by the U.S. Navy, a near guaranteed rate that only recently. If you're an equity advisor, you would dream of re- of receiving these almost guaranteed returns. And as usual, we go into it's the holding of these assets that makes up such an important part of the portfolios. Why to hold them? Where are you, do you want to be invested? Uh, therein lies the game. Fortunately, we've got some people who are a little bit more, uh, not only invested, but sorry, a little bit more knowledgeable than even me with everything that I know uh, accumulated over the last 20 minutes. I'm joking. This week. It's all about fixed interest, and I couldn't think of two better guests to get into it with. We've got Chris Siniakov, who is the Managing Director of Fixed Income at Franklin Templeton. They're pretty reputable. Uh, in true long-duration fashion, he's he's almost tallied a decade at uh, at Franklin Templeton, which says a lot about the place, says a lot about him, and says a lot about the sort of industry that he's into, which is fantastic. Also joining us is Matt Waiter. Uh, Waiter I got that. Seriously, I will get that next time. CIO of Morningstar for APAC. Chris, Matt, how are you now? Hello, James. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you.
2: Hi, James. Oh, great to be here as well. And don't worry, everyone gets it wrong.
1: <laughs> the main that is. <laughs> we'll get two we'll stats. Well, look, uh, uh, it's uh, look, part of my job. It's going to happen. You get that on the big jobs. Now, look, Chris, everyone, uh, I'm going to start with you, Franklin Templeton, our guest, uh, our guest from the fund managing side. Everyone gets the same mood-setting question, which is a really easy thing, and it introduces us to who you are and what you do and how do you make money. Chris, can you fill us in?
3: Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, yeah, look, as the as the title sort of says, uh, I'm a specialist in in fixed income markets, uh, based in Melbourne, uh, Australia, and uh, providing solutions um, to Australian investors as well as uh, investors offshore um, in in broad fixed income markets. Uh, we follow and um, and we invest um, in different economies and markets around the world, and so um, we have a task ahead of us, um,
1: probably just as big as the one we've just been through. So let's see how we go over the coming. 12 or 24 months. Fantastic. Well, I've just just added a note into here to to, to cross back into that and where you see the challenges coming up on that. Before we get to that, though, um, going with the the CIO of Morningstar for APAC is probably going to be a good person to sort of start with our first of our advisor questions. Now, I'm going to let you know, we get advisor questions coming in through the Ensemble platform. My job is to ask them to people who know the answer of those things. And if they don't give me the right answer, I'm going to keep on asking it until they give me one that I find appropriate. Um, for the most part, they actually do. So these are questions from you, the advisor. If you've got any more, put them into the platform and we'll be able to answer them um, with, our, with our help and with the assistance of Morningstar as well for, for being able to do it. Now, here's a really good, easy, broad question that we can get so matt let's go start with morningstar it's the advisor question for you uh we've had decades high rates of inflation decades high rates of inflation all around the world that's interesting what does this mean in a macro and policy sense i'd say I you what you might have to you might have to work with that one okay matt so look i've, I've given you a bit of a funny one <laughs> no
2: no all good the, the inflation's really at a, at a point where we peaked and and it's starting to fall but but whether it falls enough for for central banks is really the key, I guess. And um, and so we've hit like nine point one percent in the U.S. We're down to about three point two now. Australia, you know, I think we peaked at about seven, just just under eight percent, seven point eight percent. We're down, you know, the other day to around four point nine. These are headline levels, though, and then when you look at the core levels, they're a bit stickier. Um, those that strip out some of those volatile items, but inflation has come down a lot now. I guess the key question for the central banks is whether they think that that's uh, that's you know that, that we're on a trajectory that's going to continue, or whether inflation is going to remain you know elevated above where they're uh, where they um, where they're comfortable. Now I think that that you know there's a few other issues out there for central banks. Uh, no doubt we'll dig into them, but uh, you know unemployment. and in particular, unemployment at such low levels, uh, historically low levels across the world. um, You know, I think that that's a key issue. What's happening in China is another key issue and whether that starts to impact the slowdown there, starts to impact the rest of the world. You know, really the question for central banks is how much damage do they want to inflict on on economies? We're starting to see things start to slow down a little bit and, and can they control that slowdown? Uh, I might leave it there, and and Chris, feel free to to add anything I've missed.
1: Go ahead, there, Chris. Uh, same question. Same question to you. Just on, look, uh, I, th- I think I think there may be the wording. We've the the, the the inflation that we have seen is at a is at a decades high level. What do you see it meaning in sort of a, from a macro and policy sense?
3: Yeah, I think um I think Matt's touched on the key point, which is it's been high and it looks like it's coming down. Um, how long it will take to settle back into, you know, our sort of collective preferred area in that sort of 2 to 3% area, uh, time will tell. But the the fact that inflation is now trending lower is restoring some really important, really key relationships across financial markets. And we've kind of seen micro examples of that this year. Um, What I mean there is that uh, 2022, Um, we had correlations between markets shift significantly because of inflation. Now, it's still high, but it's coming down. And the micro example I referred to so far in 2023 was when the banking crisis emerged in March. Um, We basically had equity valuations take a bit of a hit But importantly, bond yields rallied in that environment. And that wasn't happening last year. Unfortunately, everything was going down last year. And so I think we're really um, back into um, the sort of regime that we have all become accustomed to over the preceding three decades or so uh, in general low inflation environments. And so, yeah, we can argue and nuance how long it might take to get back to target levels. But one of those key um, sort of uh, consequences, I feel, has already been resolved
1: then sort of going with that as well and this is a conversation that I have with my own investment committee and 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 with various people around the industry where 2022 saw that correlation to the downside where there was there was nowhere to hide and we'll get to this in a second talking about a 60 40 portfolio and that there was no real place to hide in the bond or equity markets at all um, as ev- as everything sort of came off in a in a strange way the correlation and and yes, you said that it that, that it is sort of dissipating a little bit now on the upside. But you're buying. I'm um, I'm 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 buying bonds. I'm buying equities at the same at, at the same well not at the same at the same time. I will be and I am and I have and I have been. But as yields drop, so we see data get worse potentially, and or inflation data drop, and and we're seeing that sort of bad news actually means good news, which means that yields are coming off and yield forecasts are coming off, which then means that equities rise. So is there where is the advantage in holding a bond over just holding an equity, since you know that both of them are going to go off, going to go up, in a decreasing inflation environment? That's the that, that's the end of a very long question. I'm sorry, Chris. I'm going to go with you on that one. If you want me to do it again, then I'll do it again.
3: No, no, I'm happy. I'm happy to sort of uh, have a first tackle on that question. Um, yeah. I guess uh, you know, look, I, if you if you get back to the underlying basics of the respective markets, equities, and and fixed income. Um, if we're going into an economic downturn, which is why the yields are likely to decline to then try and provide some support and stimulus to that deteriorating uh, economy, if if that's the environment that we're in, then the underlying characteristics of the respective um, sectors are important. So if you think of a, a company facing challenges on the top line, um, ultimately filtering through to the bottom line, and things like dividends start to get curtailed because they're discretionary management teams can determine whether or not they're going to pay an income depending on how they're managing their balance sheet um you you start to see how the initial rally um starts to sort of take a bit of a head fake because people start to realize oh gee these companies actually are not in great shape in this environment and um and that sort of lower yield stimulating asset purchases is short-lived Contrast that with fixed income, where we basically have very formulaic relationships between yield and price, as you've already discussed in your introduction. But importantly, the income is not discretionary. It's contractual. So, you know, if there's a bond, an ANZ bond or National Australia Bank bond that, you know, has a 5% coupon, they have to pay it. If they don't, they go into default. So I think you know there are a couple of reasons why I think
1: you know fixed income has a role to play um, in that sort of environment. In that, in, in, in that, okay, let's just sort of go into it. The contractual obligation that's there, it's basically having the same, effectively, that so both of them will go up for now. One with slightly less volatility and one with slightly more of a guaranteed outcome. I think is if if, if I could summarise that. Do you want to sort of agree with me on this one, Chris? I think that's fair. Yes. Okay. Very good. Very good. Now okay let's go into 2022 um this was amazing I actually had some clients and talking to myself as an advisor uh, uh, of the retail level I did have some clients who even at the beginning of 2023 did come back to me and were uh, uh, sort of just like what happened in 2022 James this is very strange we're looking at our portfolios and 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 they haven't they haven't had the usual performance I was just like I told you many times it was in the news many times that this is sort of between bonds and equities there's really not that many places that we could have that we could have gone. Just how and and that was something that d- discussed and it's fine and it's coming back now and we'll get into that in a second. But just how unusual was twenty two, in the scheme of things, with with the ability to, with with there being very minimal places to hide. Take your started, pick, I'm going to I'm going to I'm oh, going to oh, go with morning <laughs> for this one. Yes, yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that. <laughs> No, no,
2: yeah. I I started in the markets in 94 and I don't think we'd seen a situation and if that that wasn't anything even nearly like 2022 except that you know equities and bonds sold off for a period in in 94 as well but but I mean I think that, that 2022 was you know is a bit of a left tail event for bonds you know considering what happened I think you know when we're multi asset investors and and we really focus on valuation we we didn't have a lot of um Duration going into it because we thought the bonds were significantly overvalued coming into 2022. We 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 held lots of cash and and yeah that was a drag on real returns. But but we felt that that it you know bonds just weren't providing you any diversification benefit at all. Now now and and moving through 20. 22, we were able to add duration. We have quite flexible, and I know we're going to get to the 60-40 portfolio, we have quite flexible mandates, so we were able to add as the diversification benefit that we've talked about already um, became more prevalent in bonds, as, as yields rose and we could actually take advantage of that, and I think that that's you, you re, really we want to when in the bond market. You want to focus. You you certainly have these contractual obligations to be paid. You can have security around that, but you you don't you don't necessarily want to be uh, investing uh, when there's not really a, a benefit to you there, especially a diversification benefit, which is a key role that they play.
1: Yeah, that's that's well put. Uh, Chris, did you have anything to add to that one about how how unusual twenty twenty two was? I mean, you, you would have been right there at the coalface, just what yeah. what was there to do? I, I I like to sort of go into this sort of situation for people.
3: Yeah, I know um, you know, a lot of investors are currently questioning um why would we do anything but hold cash? Um it was actually last year was actually the year to hold cash. Um and so, you know, if you didn't like the characteristics of fixed income, and and Matt's touched on it beautifully that you know, smart investors were underweight fixed income or maybe zero weight fixed income. That made sense back then. Uh, you know, if I look back at our own Australian bond index, the Australian uh AusBond Composite Bond Index, in January 21, the yield was 0.7, 0.7%. Hmm.
1: Um,
3: and its duration sensitivity was at you know a record high, 6.3. So very high sensitivity to changes in interest rates. So those dynamics, those attributes are the wrong way around. You kind of want your yield to be higher than your interest rate sensitivity to provide your buffer and so it was completely flipped, and so it made sense for people to move out. Um, but yeah, being in fixed income markets and you know managing assets uh, against the index and and um, you know outright markets was was very very challenging. And last year was really the year uh, for people to be in cash
1: if they were um, attuned to inflation picking up in the way that it did. Well, now that now that we sort of move into it as well, and I remember something that came up last year: the Bank of America fund manager survey. It ended a lot of last year with its survey, which is a significant survey that is quite quite well followed and watched and talked about. Saying that uh, it asked its participants that what it saw the sixty forty portfolio as being its performance. and it was actually it, it was regarded extraordinarily low for what its twelve months outlook was actually going to be. And I know that this was the case because I actually spent a lot of time on TV and radio disagreeing with that case, saying that no, actually, if you look at the sixty forty portfolio, we're going to see that 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 yields are are fairly high and the potentially that that may start to, to, to come around bonds are going to rally and as that happens then equities are going to that that has proven to be the case I'm not saying yeah, yeah I was right or going it. I was just like but you can see that a mass of the market that wasn't the 60 40 portfolio does it still does it still have the outlook that 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 it that it has now which you would think that it was where do you sort of see that, see that as falling now I know that Morningstar probably better with the portfolio allocation side of this one. So we're going to go with the Morningstar side on this one.
2: Sure. I mean, I think that that uh, at the moment, yeah, the 60-40 portfolio looks reasonable. You're going to get a reasonable long-term return out of the 60-40 portfolio from this starting point. You know, it's not good. It's not great but it's not not the worst it's certainly not uh December 2021 or January 2020 when when it looked you know terrible um in 20 sorry 2020 it looked terrible from an equities perspective i think January 2020 uh sorry December 2021 it looked 6 forward looking returns for a 60 40 portfolio looked terrible from both a bond and equities perspective. But now, we're you know, you're going to get reasonable returns out of a 60-40 portfolio, you know, and mainly that's a, a lot of that's being driven from the diversification benefit you can get from the bond side with yields being up around, you know, to above 4%. Now, it's not the best environment to, to be investing in a 60-40 portfolio, but, you know, it's a reasonable, we, we get reasonable expected returns. Well, what we would say is that, you know, being anchored to a 60-40 portfolio is probably not uh, the best way to, to think about investing uh, generally um, and the, the more flexibility you have the you know to be able to go into into cash um you know generally you wanted to be in cash before 2022 started um, from a bond perspective but the more flexibility you have um, the, the better you're going to be able to manage those outcomes so so the 6040 portfolio at the moment looks good has looked terrible at other times and it'll look good and even better and terrible again at, at other times as well from an expected return perspective.
1: No, outstanding, good answer. Now let's talk. Now, this is a question for for, for both of you, with regards to, you're as as an advisor, you need to invest across the spectrum of assets. What does it mean if you can get four or five percent in a near guaranteed area? And I'm, I always use left to right when I'm visualising this thing. Left being the safest asset, right right being um, the, the the more risky side of things. Um, we're talking about the risk return spectrum. We don't, we're not going to go into that area too much on this one. But what does it mean for your investment for your portfolio delivering to something to a client if you've got that safe area which is now bigger that you can allocate a larger amount to it and have, a, and have that same return? What does it mean for the rest of your investment? So we're going to stick with Morningstar on this one. Um, and, then, and then, Chris, I want you to sort of kick in and, and, and just sort of say what does it actually mean for, for the rest of the spectrum where if you've got more of that investment going to that, what does it sort of mean flowing through to the rest of the market? Yeah, so so I think from a from a portfolio
2: construction perspective in a multi- asset portfolio having you know fixed income and I'll start with the more growthy end of the of the risk profiles you know so 70 30 80 20 60 40 type portfolios yep. having bonds at, at sort of above four percent you know up to even four and a half percent is really great ballast for a growthier portfolio in fact if you think that that the you know, there's there's a chance of recession, but there's also a chance that that we avoid recession. Then you can even afford to hold some more cyclical assets uh, in the equity side of your your portfolio because you're getting some diversification benefit. You've got some balance there from a fixed income perspective. Now it also helps a lot when you're looking down at uh, at, at um, obviously when you're trying to achieve uh, shorter term returns for, a, say, a conservative or a moderate investor. You know, you're going to be able to you know generate those. returns returns, especially with inflation falling, you know, real yields are, are much higher than they were. Um, and you're getting you know you' you're getting actually bang for your buck from a return perspective um from bonds as well. and and I think you know, some of those trade-offs that Chris will be able to talk about much more deeply than I around you know emerging market bonds versus uh, credit versus high- yield bonds um versus, as you say, just the risk-free uh, government bonds that you get, you know Aussie government bonds or or uh, or um US government bonds. You know that that's a really challenging kind of uh, part of the market at the moment. To, do you take the uh, the extra yield that you might be able to get from taking a little bit more risk in in other fixed income asset classes, or do you uh, or do you um, stick with the the risk free government rates
1: that you can get, which are attractive at this point in time? I, I'm super keen to actually really unpack that, Chris. If you if, if you want to, if you could possibly and very kindly go into the actual specific. Areas that you can go into in the in the fixed interest spectrum and and uh, and unpack sort of there maybe with your outlooks as well that'd be pretty cool and I'll make sure that I take notes because I'm looking to sort of yeah. mix a few things around here as well.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do that and it might take a couple of uh, questions back and forth. But look, this is this is where fixed income is a, a really interesting asset class and. And very well suited to um, active management. There, there are many dimensions in fixed income. You know, we we say yields are high. For example, it's a very uh, simple, high-level statement. Um, but you know, what what's very interesting about the market at the moment is the shape of yield curves. Yield curves are flat, and in some countries they're inverse. So on that left to right spectrum, James, uh, shorter you know maturity bonds are yielding more than longer maturity bonds. It's an unusual, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, or you could say a rare kind of um, status. But it does actually provide a signal to markets as well. And in the United States, where inverse curves uh, provide a very strong signal, they uh, proceed and warn of difficult economic environments, uh, namely recessions. So that's kind of the current status. The U.S. yield curve has been inverse between the 2s and 10-year maturities up to 100 basis points. So I could earn 100 basis points more by buying a 2-year security in the government bond versus a 10-year security. So you can see how immediately we get the chance to be active and position our portfolios in, in different segments of just the treasury curve. Um, that then sort of also extends out to other markets. So once you get away from the risk-free treasury markets, you start to consider uh, spread or credit markets, and the first level of of credit risk that most people tend to associate with is investment grade risk. Yep. Um, and here in Australia, we had a, a quite a quite a material uh, revaluation last year, and we have seen some retracement in two thousand and twenty-three, but we're still above longer-term averages. Whereas in the United States, uh, they took a hit last year, but not as much as Australia. Australia actually widened more on that credit spread basis um, than the United States, but they've fully retraced. And so now you can see how we can compare, you know, another alternative being credit relative to, you know, preceding or historical valuation levels, but also between countries as well. And so you can see how the dimensions are really starting uh, to open up i'm, I'm going to actually... uh,
1: chris i'm just going to yeah. cut it and just and just can you uh, for for a lot of our listeners just explain the importance of credit spreads and why they why why they need to be paid attention to
3: yeah so uh, if you if you think of um the credit market, it is a group of issuers, non-government uh, related entities that are borrowing from the capital markets and we as investors are effectively lending to them. So their all-in yield consists of two principal components. One is the base or risk-free rate. Um, and then the second component is the credit spread. So the risk-free rate is just the yeah, local government uh, treasury mm-hmm. curve. And then the spread is what compensation you receive for taking on the risk of that entity when you lend them money. Um, and so, if they're a, a you know a, a dodgy garage operation, uh, which doesn't tend to happen in capital markets, but you, you get the point. Um, if if they're a, a lower uh, sorry a higher risk entity, um, the spread or compensation over the risk-free rate is greater. And when it's a, a higher quality entity, the spread is narrower. But no these spreads move higher and lower on market sentiment every day. And as, so there are times – yep, sorry.
1: No, you, you, you've got it. Sorry. Yeah, that's, uh, as, as they get bigger, that's, that's, as, it's telling you that something might, might be a little bit sus.
3: That's correct. So, last year was a widening environment. People were getting concerned about the central banks tightening so severely, so rapidly. And uh, and so, they started to think about the next two or three years being a difficult environment for those entities that are using the capital markets. And so, they increased those spreads to compensate those those investments. Okay. So, yep, that's, uh, that's kind of how... Um, I'll let you, you go know. on. I'll let you
1: go on with that, Chris. Sorry about that.
3: Yep. No problem. So, so at the moment, um, in terms of our view, uh, we do like um, high quality investment grade opportunities. Um, we're seeing um, you know, really good opportunities in this space that um, have already had some widening of spread. So you're being compensated to buy these. But when you do put it over this new level of um, base rate or treasury um, risk-free rate, you're getting yields uh, in excess of sort of six and a half, seven percent. And I'm talking here about, you know, some of um, the strongest uh, organisations in our system. Uh, For example, the Australian banks um, are offering bonds, you know, typically with, uh, say, a five-year maturity, um, with you know firm 6% yield um, opportunities uh, for investors. Uh, we recently uh, participated in an opportunity that came into the Australian market from offshore, um, Lloyds Bank, so the largest bank in the UK outside of HSBC. Uh, they came out to Australia to, to borrow some money. Um, they issued a bond out to 2028, so a five-year maturity. Um, They did it in a tier two category. So just slightly subordinated below the the senior unsecured and the yield on that was 7.08%. Now, you know, we kind of have to ask ourselves, why would we invest in investment grade credit at this point in time, if we're going to go into um, an economic environment that's deteriorating? Well, if you think of those two component parts, the risk-free yield and the spread, the spreads may indeed widen if we do get the global economy deteriorating um, at a significant enough pace. Mm. But the base yield, that treasury yield, will rally harder than spreads will widen, and the all-in yield will potentially decline. So we feel very secure in high-quality investment-grade credit uh, because of those component parts working in an opposing manner. But really being overwhelmed by the Treasury rates rallying harder than the spreads are widening.
1: As you – yeah, sorry. No, no, I'm going to get out of your way, Chris. Just (laughs) just, just, just wind it up. Don't wind it up. You are winding up. You are doing perfectly. I'm sorry.
3: Yeah. And so that's that's a high quality investment grade. Uh, But if you do start to then venture a bit further out onto the credit spectrum, and you start to consider markets like high yield markets or opportunities, well then that component over the treasury rate, the spread you need for compensation for that level of risk must be wider than the investment grade. And what comes with a wider base spread is also greater volatility. And so if you think of that scenario where the economy deteriorates, credit spreads get revalued, the higher volatility in the high yield market um, will likely overwhelm the rally in the risk-free treasury yield. That's the base uh, component of the all-in yield. And so it's not as clear cut that high yield investments offer a great sort of opportunity in the next, say, 12 or 24 months. And indeed, um, most projections at the moment are that the uh, default rates in the high yield markets around the world, both the traditional high yield markets that we've all participated in, but also the the growing loans markets, um, which have emerged on on global um, opportunities for investors, but predominantly has a great history in the United States. uh, These markets are really starting to factor in higher default rates over the next 12 to 24 months. And so
1: you need to be very careful with your security selection in those areas. So you just want to go further up, I'm going to say, up the letter up the letter ratings of, of your various ratings agencies and trying to stay away from anything with a B and go towards something with more of an A. That's, it certainly a that, that's exactly our preference, yes. Very good. Uh, and emerging markets, I'm going to ask you, me being me being an emerging markets fan, I've always got to ask back your self-interest on this one. Yeah, emerging markets. Uh,
3: you know, no emerging market is the same, so it is really um, difficult to summarise it neatly. Um, I would say in our part of the world, China is is facing uh, the most significant challenges it's it's faced in the last 40 years of this uh, amazing emergence of China as you know a potential superpower, um, and that's that's going to um, be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, we've recently seen uh, the officials in China. Um, pull back the release of unemployment of their youth population which is up around 20%. They're not going to publish that number anymore. Yeah. So they they're getting to this sort of stage where it's so ugly they don't even want to
1: talk about it.
3: It's very um, Zimbabwean
1: yeah. sort of style of doing things
3: yeah. isn't it? A... <laughs> yeah, no it's it's a great it's a great example that you use with Zimbabwe. Um and so um and so you know I think you know that that's going to have sort of ripple effects across all of emerging markets, but obviously um, in the Asia region as well. Um, But we, you know, we have so many changing uh, winds in the cross currents in the emerging markets. If you just think of, um, you know, the world's reaction post COVID to globalization um, and, you know, security of certain goods um, that they they want to sort of manufacture closer to home, um, you know, that's really going to uh, be an environment for some winners but also some losers as well.
1: That's all right. Uh, Matt, I'm going to ask you the same question on emerging market debt because I know that you sort of hinted on it before.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that there's still a a small opportunity there. I think that that you know we still have some holdings in our portfolio in emerging market debt, but it's coming to an end I'd say. Um the spreads are getting pretty tight relative to developed markets at this point in time. Um mm. you know, historically tight. Um I think one thing that emerging markets yeah, and and the Agree with Chris's point on China. There's, there's, it's, uh, it's, it's a really, uh, lots going on there. Um, but, but one of the things that people should note about emerging markets is that lots of them are already into a uh, rate, pretty significant rate cutting cycle. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they they raise rose rates, uh, way way. Harder and faster than than some of the developed economies in in a lot of places, um, and and now they're they're cutting rates um, in lots of places. Now the the issue for for holding emerging markets debt there is that then becomes the currency. So any any yield you're getting from the bonds can get pretty significantly wiped out if you're holding Brazilian government bonds and the real tanks. Then then that you're not in a good position there if you're holding local emerging market local cur- currency government bonds. Um, yeah. But we, we yeah, we, 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 thought it has been a good opportunity, and, and we're starting to, to downweight that now, given the, uh, the spreads have tightened so much.
1: Yeah, and, and I've seen that as well. Remember, there was a time not that long ago when there was a lot of people from around the world that were looking at the Chinese at the Chinese bond yields and just thinking, we've got to get some of that. It's um, we in a world where there was a lot of zeros around, and uh, that there was actually paying mm. something. Switching back around now, um, I think that we can take that away from what you've said, not only economically, but just on those on those other numbers that they are in a rate cutting cycle too, and and we're waiting for the yeah. next thing to happen. That's right. Uh Now, I'm going to get to the next one of their advisor questions here. You know what? Let's just talk about actual methodology that we can get into it, because it was funny what you said there, Matt. I'm going to segue this. This is one of my gifts. Funny what you said there, Matt, which is talking about this, the, the emerging market debt that you can get into and checking what the currency actually is, because you're going to find if you go into one of these, say a basket, say an ETF, which is the way that a lot of people access this stuff, is, is that it's actually, you find that it's actually denominated in a currency that maybe you didn't want to think about at this particular thing. And if you want to have potentially a bullish or bearish case in US dollar, you have to look at what currency that debt is actually priced in. So... I'm going to sort of lead that in this way that the people actually have to know what's what's under the hood. Uh, Chris, I'm going to start with you, and then and then Matt will bounce it there. But what are the different ways that investors can actually access fixed interest investments for across their portfolios? Uh, certainly,
3: um, it's it's evolved significantly, and this is what I really like about working with um, the advisor network in Australia these days, that, um, you know, the the evolution of um, their sort of approach to investments has really provided a lot of opportunities. And certainly for advisors that now run uh, managed account style of allocations, you know, using the expertise of, of of someone like Morningstar to help them understand where to asset allocate, they can make decisions very quickly. And fixed income, like other asset classes, now gives you different opportunities. Uh, certainly, um, in different markets around the world, you can invest in some uh, opportunities directly. Um, Australia doesn't have a great direct sort of retail opportunity for bond investors. It's uh, typically been restricted to uh, the Australian uh, bank hybrids, um, which is you know a, a unique uh, segment of of the market. Mm. But in Australia, uh, managed funds. Um, have been around for a long time, and increasingly now uh, ETFs are becoming uh, popular vehicles for accessing fixed income markets. And you know we are slowly seeing more and more uh, active ETFs coming into the market. So it's not just about getting the market beta, uh, but getting you know well-run ETFs um, into portfolios. That's right, Matt. Do you have uh,
1: any ideas on this one?
2: Uh, yeah I mean I think that that everything that Chris said totally agree. I think you know in the Australian market that that ETF market is really starting to develop. They they're developing uh ETFs that that look across the curve, I guess different different you know 1 to 3 years, you know 5 to 7, 7 to 10 and so you know you, you can really if you know what you're doing can implement uh you know Reasonably sophisticated uh, fixed income strategies, just using ETFs in the Australia on the listed on the ASX. Um, you know, generally speaking, uh, we'll we'll use some of those ETFs in the separately amount uh, separately managed account products, the SMAs that we run the managed accounts, and and you know they're really useful to to be able to do. Uh, I think, you know, your point on managing currency is is a really good one. It's, you know, understanding what's under the hood in some of the uh, international ETFs and, and whatnot, whether they're active or passive, and the, the risks that are involved is really, really important.
1: All right. And look, I, I think that we're almost ready to wrap it up now. So the last few of the advisor questions that are here, inflationary outlook and what it means for global financial policies. Uh, look, let's let's start with Matt, and uh, and then we'll go to Chris yeah look, I mean
2: I think that uh, you know, we think that inflation will normalize back into that band, um but it'll take time. We think that it's not this it, that that two to three percent band we think you know it's going to take it's going to take a little while um and you know the the risk is fairly balanced to whether whether you know uh, central banks need you know another rate rise or or not. We think that, but but it, rate rises are, we think, feel coming to an end, and and I guess the key risk that we see, say, in the near term, is whether. Um, yeah you know, central banks go too far and and push economies into recession. I think you know economies at the moment you know may avoid a recession. I think there's certainly a growth slowdown on the horizon, um but but a bit too much in terms of rate rises will push uh, you know put a lot of pressure, particularly in Australia on household budgets, uh, they're already under a lot of strain, and I think that, that that could really tip things into into recession if if central bank if
1: the RBA goes too far. Chris, over to you inflationary outlooks yeah
2: i i'm
1: I'm a bit
3: concerned about um inflation in the sense that it ultimately will end up in central banks creating a very difficult, uncomfortable environment. Um, either inflation stays persistently high and they have to tighten more, which is you know a very low scenario it seems now um or or this stickiness that people refer to persists for longer and central banks at least hold these current uh, policy settings for an extended period. Um, I think both of those scenarios are going to be really challenging for the global economic environment. You know, people sort of say to me, but, you know, you look outside the window, you know, people seem to be doing okay at the moment. um, (laughs) And, you know, everyone's predicting the perfect sort of soft landing um, for, for the global economy. These, these changes that we've had in policy in the last 12 or 18 months are unprecedented in magnitude, pace, uh, any way you want to sort of uh, shape it or define it. And the consequences of it take a long time to come through. You know, Matt touched on uh, the Australian households. What's great here is um, uh, there's a lot of knockers for the RBA and, and they've, yeah maybe made some faux bars over time, but they actually, they actually know where the debt sits. The debt sits in our households. Mm. And so if you actually look at our, ma- our mortgage rate, while we've been one of the lowest in terms of um, adjustments to cash rates in the world, our adjustment to our mortgage rate is higher, second highest in the world. So you know, there's this transmission in Australia from policy setting to mortgage rates, which is very direct. And we've seen in Australia through COVID when um, the central bank um, artificially suppressed official cash rates and and treasury yields down to, you know, 0.1%. We saw the largest round of fixing of mortgages that we've seen in Australian mortgage history. Mm. And those mortgages are now rolling off. Those fixed mortgages for two or three years are rolling off as we speak. And so, you know, We've, we felt it in markets for the last two years, but the economy is only just starting to feel it now. And, uh, and so I, I'm concerned that if the central banks really think that they, they can keep the, the cash rate at these elevated levels uh, for a long time, then um, we're going to be in a whole world of, of fundamental pain. And that's true also for other economies like the United States. Over there, hmm. it's not so much a household issue, um, but certainly a corporate issue, but even at a government level. But they are sort of, you know, the world's safe haven currency, so you know they kind of get away with it. Uh, but you know, corporates all termed out their debt through 2021 into 2022. Um, that debt has a longer maturity profile than Australian mortgages. It's more like say five years. But that wall of refinancing is going to come. It'll come in 2025, and so. Um, if yields stay persistently higher, um, it makes it very difficult for business operating models to survive um, in that sort of environment. So I really, I really hope that central banks can be preemptive here. They're not sending that message. And unfortunately, you know, that, that's kind of not sitting well with me. I, I do hope it is a bit like my old football club. Um, you know, Football clubs and, and the boards always give the coach their full support. Right up I until know. the morning, they fire them. That's right. And and, and and I just hope that central banks are talking their book at the moment and that what they really aim to do is um, pull back on policy settings in the next 12 months or so, just in a moderate sense. Um, you know, In Australia, we're at 4.1. In the US, up around that sort of five and a quarter, five and a half level. But they both believe that the neutral rate of policy, somewhere like two and a half or three, Well, if you see the the effects of your tightening actually working in the economy, then pull your policy setting down, not back to stimulatory levels, but maybe just less less, uh, restrictive. That would be really great because unfortunately, the last couple of decades, we've only seen the extremes of policy settings, ultra, ultra easy, zero interest rate policy, or as we are now at very restrictive levels. And I think if they keep swinging the pendulum like that, it's just really difficult operating environment for economies. So, you know, I'm, I'm really looking for um, central banks to be more proactive in their policy, at least back to that neutral area um, in the next 12 months. Oh, I think
1: that
2: I, I, I really agree with Chris there. And I think people don't really realise the slow-moving train wreck that we're on. Every time that someone needs to – a company, a, a household needs to refinance, they're doing it at a rate that's, you know, at least in Australia, about 4% higher than they were doing a couple of years ago. And, and in the, U, the US, 55 6 7 you know, for, for high-yield companies, you know, 12%, uh, at rates
1: of 12%,
2: those, those sorts of levels. So there's a lot of pressure coming uh, for anyone that needs to refinance.
1: Well, that's been that's – Slow-moving train wreck is probably about where I'm going to want to wrap this podcast up uh, on that one. Thanks very much for that one. But the, uh, couldn't ask for a better way to uh, – I am going to call for last bids uh, if anyone's got anything uh, more to put on. I always give people a last chance to to go in, uh, maybe not necessarily talk your book, but if there's anything that you think that needed to be covered, then please uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. All uh, I, silent. I, oh, no, I, I,
3: I will just um, sort of finish off on, on my statement about this high-yield environment. It's in this environment that fundamentals really matter. Some people can, can deal with high yields. Some companies can deal with high yields. Others can't. Whereas, you know, the last decade we had free money, everyone prospered. So I think if you haven't already, you really need to move out of passive beta sort of type of strategies interactive strategies. Now, yeah, that that is talking my book. I'll be up front. No, get going to funda- it. yeah, fundamentals yeah. really matter at this level, as I was uh, uh talking to earlier in terms of you know working out whether your business model can survive in a in a high yield environment. And so now that brings in all sorts of opportunities for investors, stock picking, um geographic allocations, currencies we mentioned. So active management's really key in the next uh, yeah. two or three years for certain.
2: Yeah, I concur. I think the 2010s were a very unusual environment. Markets tried to get their 2010s mojo back again at the start of this year, but uh, but it's it's a much it's a much higher hurdle uh, with with rates where they
1: are. I think that I think that we touched on uh, it during the the duration <laughs> during the duration during the, uh, in the the duration. That's a that's a bond joke, everyone. Uh, the uh, we went through this podcast talk. We talked about geography. We talked about China. I wanted to talk about India, but we're not going to do that. We talked about sort of where our outlook was. We talked about being able to pick apart an actual underlying underlying asset and the currency in which it is used. I think that based on the feedback, based on the answers that we had to the questions here, it's pretty obvious that that there is active management advantages based on all of those things, as opposed to just going. I'm just going to invest in in a simple passive index, and there we go, and we're going to hope for the best. That has answered that question, and then it's even better to specifically answer that question. On that note, hence we will close the podcast. At the high, um, we got it off a slow-moving train wreck, and we got it onto a more of an active, uh, moving, profitable train wreck. Oh, we'll go with that. I might edit that later. Uh, Chris, Chris Managing Director, of Fixed Income at Franklin Templeton. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Matt Waitcher, CIO of Morningstar for APAC. Thank you so much for uh, for coming along. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Now, if you want more information, go to the Ensemble platform, put in more questions, we will have more answers for you. Go to the various websites, the link in this podcast, and we'll be happy to help you. My name is James Whelan, BFS Investments. I will talk to you later.